Life-Saving Gratitude Podcast. I'm Bunny Terry, your host, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Johanna Medina. We have a really, um, uh, uh, an interesting guest and someone who, just like every other guest we ever had, surprised us somewhat. We are talking today with Rick Bailey, who is the president of Northern New Mexico College. And for those of you who are not from New Mexico, um, Northern New Mexico College is in Española. It's in a very economically depressed part of the state. Northern New Mexico is just economically depressed, but Rick has done some amazing things. And he and I are acquainted through the Cancer Foundation. I'm now the chair and he's my um, vice chair, but there is so much more to this guy and to what he's done for that community. Were you surprised, Johanna? I was very surprised. Um, and, you know, I, I love this episode because I think it's a combination of all of your favorite things. You know, it's, right. it's you know him from the Cancer Foundation. Um, it's about higher education and you're, you're a big nerd for sure. And also <laughs> um, it's about New Mexico and northern New Mexico where you live. And, I mean, you wrote... You have your blog. I love New Mexico because I mean you love New Mexico. Um, so it's a it's a cool combination to talk about all the things that you really love and care about. And and Rick is so energized and inspirational, um, and and just passionate about what he's doing in Northern New Mexico, especially for someone who's not from the area. And um, you know, I, I definitely like you said, I was surprised. I had no idea. I've been to Española. I've driven past that college a hundred times and I I did not know all the things that they were doing up there. And I think I'm, I'm excited for people to hear about what they're doing. Well, and it's a real example. His, his training, he was in the military for 24 years, but his mm-hmm. training really was in um, strategic planning. And mm-hmm. he, um, uh, he has a doctorate in government and a master's degree in international affairs, but his big deal is strategic planning. And, and what we, what we talk about in the beginning, and then we talk about throughout. And then again, at the end is, is what is strategic planning and what does it really mean? And, and Rick was quick to say that um, the strengths, I mean, one of, one of the ways to be a good strategic planner is to lead with your heart and to figure out how you could, we can all serve one another. And that's, that's a really, that's a different approach than a lot of people use when they talk about strategic planning. I was fascinated. Yeah. And it reminded me of where you, you, um, you know, how you like to say, and your big thing too, is like coming from abundance and leading with, with that, um, I, I see it as another way of saying, you know, leading with your heart. So um, I think you guys come from very similar <laughs> frames of mind. And so it was it was really just cool to get to meet him and talk to him. He's a very interesting person. So, Well, and I, I think that anybody who's listening is going to get some tips just about, how, you know, how to make a difference in your community and in the organizations, wherever you serve, even even if you're a leader at work. This guy knows about um, being strategic, knowing what your context is, um, being adaptable, and making a huge difference. So I, 
I, I always say this, but this is one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all our favorites, but I yes. hope everybody enjoys this one. They are. They are. So thank you for listening. Thank you for reviewing us and um, for subscribing, downloading wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the Life Saving Gratitude Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host and producer, Johanna Medina, as well as our guest, President Rick Bailey of the northern of northern new mexico college did i say that correctly you did that's perfect bunny and it's on it's an honor to be with you thanks for having me oh i'm so excited um rick and i know one another through the cancer foundation for new mexico and rick i have to tell you that when i got your um resume your cv and i started reading i was like whoa wait a second um i mean i knew that you had had this long career in the air force you flew planes, right? Fighter mm-hmm. planes. Uh, and different kinds of planes, yeah. Different kinds of planes. And then taught at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies yes. in Alabama. Yes. And then somehow you ended up in northern New Mexico. What, yeah. How did that happen? It was a, a very interesting story, actually. I had... I was sitting at the faculty lunch table in Alabama. And so for, for your for your listeners, the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies is a one-year intensive master's program in military strategy and strategic thinking. and uh, But it's housed at Air University, which is the Air Force's global university. And it's headquartered in Montgomery, Alabama. My wife, Diana, has because the Air Force is not easy and you move around every two to three years, we had made a deal with each other that that because she had followed me, had to, as as I got stationed all around the world, that when I decided to retire from the military, I we would shift gears and I would follow her. And so the deal we made, I said, well, we, there's really, we could go anywhere you want. And she said, I want to go to New Mexico. And so we knew even before, you know, sitting in Alabama, I knew we were going to move to New Mexico. I didn't have a job. Neither of us did. And I was sitting at the faculty lunch table and loved the idea of staying somehow in education. And there's a, there's a newspaper called the Chronicle for Higher Education. In the very back, they have job ads. And sure enough, there was this job ad for president of Northern New Mexico College. And so I called Diana and I said, hey, there's there's this place and it's in Espanola and it's just north of Santa Fe. And so she started crying. Hopefully she's not going to mind me sharing this story. <laughs> so she starts crying, like literally like, oh my gosh, that's it. I know that that's, that's, what, that's what we're meant to go do. And so I had to kind of temper expectations and say, that's not how this works. Uh, we don't get to just decide, uh, but, but I'll put an application in and we'll see. And uh, next thing you know, uh, we, we were really fortunate and they decided to take a chance on me. And so... I retired from the Air Force in Montgomery, Alabama on a Friday, got in a car on Saturday, drove across country and started here on a Monday. And that was five years ago. Well, so that's we're, how so, that we're so fortunate to have you here. Um, oh, thanks, Bunny. Because as we were talking before we started recording, um, this, they're really, in fact, I looked up a bunch of articles. If you, if you, Google higher education in crisis. It's, that's that's a hot topic now. That um, and it, and that um, 
the pandemic hit just about every industry hard, but few were hit as hard as higher education. Um, that people are rethinking the value of a college education. And, and in this moment in time, when higher education seems to be in crisis, your list of accomplishments up at in NMC is pretty amazing. I mean, you've, um, you increased enrollment, you increased your graduation rate, you lowered your student debt. Tell, yeah. tell us some of the things that have yeah. happened and how you did that. That's yeah. So first of all, well, first of all, thank you for asking the question. Uh, I, so it's not me who did it. So I want to be very, I, and I'm not, that's not forced humility or anything like that. Um, I think I am fortunate enough to have been in service to this institution as it is undergoing this amazing transformation, which is wonderful. Um, I think there's a couple of things. We we were lucky enough um, to, to weather the storm, I think, better than, than other colleges and universities. But in, in some ways, I think it's because we had put strategic things in place over the last couple of years that really started to bear fruit, even in the midst of the pandemic. So we're the one college or university in New Mexico that actually grew during the pandemic, which is phenomenal. Wow. Um, we recognize how, how fortunate we were there. But again, I think it's because there were things that we had put into place earlier that just were, were catching fire. Um, and so and that's a really interesting thing. You talked about the, the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. In a way, that was all about strategy, right? And strategic thinking. And so coming here now and, and being at a place that was really in... Um, that was dealing with some serious challenges, it was a chance for me to walk the walk, right? And say, okay, how are we going to think strategically about where we want to be as an institution? And so five years ago, and I had only been here for, for a few weeks, but we started a, a series of, of dialogues as an institution. And by the way, this wasn't the president and a couple of vice presidents sitting around a room and determining the strategy for the college. We invited everybody. So we had custodial staff and security teams and faculty members and everyone came together and we had two simple questions. One was, how do we interpret the current environment and what do we want the future to look like? And, and when you set those two things side by side and you start to draw intellectual linkages between them, then the, the strategic plan starts almost organically to fall into place. And that's how we built the strategic direction. And it has served us well. And, and as I said, I think even in the midst of the, the crises that we have faced over the last almost two years now, uh, those things were, were bearing fruit. And we were, uh, luckily, we were the recipients of that. Well, you said something really cool when we were talking before. You said, I have an amazing team. And any of these people could go elsewhere and make more money. What did you say to me? Yeah, that there is. So at Northern New Mexico College, many of our students, many of our students uh, come from environments where they have faced unspeakable social and economic trauma. That, that is hard for me to even to articulate. Um, but after generations, they have shown such resilience 
in terms of how they they deal with those challenges it is truly inspiring one of the one of the things Diana and I always talk about we we've had the the great benefit through the Air Force of you know I've been to 40 countries all over the world and all 50 states and we've lived in so many different places but but we've never lived in a place where people are so genuinely kind to each other as as right here in northern New Mexico and and that makes this place really really special and so to your question about the the people that I have the good fortune to to serve with they are all people who who could likely go anywhere else not just somewhere else but anywhere else and and make more, but they are here because they know that what they are doing is really making a difference. And it's not just educational, but transformative because when you take someone who is, who's traditionally, uh, or who comes from an environment, uh, where there is a traditionally underrepresented group of people in higher education, and now you create a pathway and, and help them to achieve their own educational goals. Well, then that isn't just transformative for them and their families, but over time, there's whole communities that can start to, to change the game um, and to change the path for themselves. And so uh, to me, that's a rising tide that lifts all boats. And it's, it's really, really exciting to be a part of, of that team and a part of that process. And I think that's why I think that's why we've been successful is because everyone pulls an oar in that direction and understands that that what we do matters. I will say this, sorry for the long answer to your question. No, I love it. Uh, I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, if you, so we have 320 employees at the college, give or take. And we don't, I know this is going to be a shocker for your listeners. We don't always agree on everything. <laughs> uh, I know that's right. going to surprise everyone. Uh, but, uh, and I mean this to a person, Every single person at, at this college is here because they want to make a difference in the lives of students, every single one. And, and when you have a team, even if you disagree on kind of how we get there, if, if we all start with that, then you can move mountains because everyone is, is, everyone's heart is in the right place. And now it's just about how we, how we move the, the vehicle forward. Right. Um, so, so I am, you know, I'm not just saying this, it is, I am really privileged and, and honored to be able to serve with a group of people who, who lead with their heart like that. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just happy to be, I'm happy to be in the room with them. So. Well, and when you said that before, you said, we're really, everyone is really leading with their heart. It made me think about, I mean, we're on the board of the Cancer Foundation together, and and what I've, this is the best board we've ever had. I think I'm not to not to say anything about people who've served on the board before and not there. This is just the perfect combo because no, just say it, Bunny. We're better. It's, it's just a better. <laughs> it's a better group of people. No. <laughs> yeah, well, the chair and the vice chair. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I I wonder if that leading with your heart. Um, also leads to some form of resilience. I, you know, I'm just, we talk about resilience on this podcast a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you asked the way you did. So right before the podcast, I mean, 15 minutes before the podcast, uh-huh. we, I was out in the parking lot here 
and we were doing a food distribution to our students. And we started it about two years ago and we had gotten some, some donors and some funders to help us. We, what we, and again, this is about how do we think more holistically about, about student services. And for the listeners before that we, we started recording, I was telling Johanna, Johanna, because I'm such a fan of, of, you know, what she does and social work and how important it is. And so this is us trying to, to do that in, you know, in the, in the, framework of the college. Very interesting in terms of resilience, Bunny, the way you asked the question. It is a, it's a blessing and a challenge at the same time. So it, it, it's a blessing in the sense that there are a lot of people who are, who are not afraid of the stigma of getting help, right? Who, who hey, if they need it, they are going to get help. And so you know, we, we, we started this thing in March of 2020, could not have timed it any worse. We, we started a food pantry. The idea is that students would walk in, we'd get no, no application. All they had to do was show a student ID. And we basically had shelves stocked and they were given a bag and they could just fill it up with whatever they wanted. Well, we were two weeks before the grand opening when, when we all had to go into lockdown. And so we, we shifted gears and we thought about, okay, how do we, how do we do this differently? Again, this is resilience, right? How do you, how, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you work creatively at solving really big challenges? And so we did almost like you would do an online supermarket. We basically said, here's everything that's here. We had students, you could order it on their phone and we built special bags for them. And then we did kind of a drive-through pickup thing. Um, so, so the blessing is that there, there were students who were willing to to um, to fight the stigma and say, you know what, I, this is going to help me and I'm okay with that. The challenge is that not everyone is willing to overcome the stigma, right? And so um, I think, Johanna, I want your opinion on this, but I think the same is true probably in social work that, that even if there are, even if there are opportunities for assistance, and even though there are heart-centered people who are who are dedicating themselves to to being of service? Um, there's still a there's still a pull, right? There still has to be this desire to to welcome that assistance, right? And that's not it's not always a given. So you have to, and this is what we're working on at the college. You have to cultivate an environment where it is not just okay, but it is welcome. I mean, this is this is a part of who we are. It's part of our identity as a college, as a, as a team, as an organization, and then, and then you're off to the races, but that's not, that, that doesn't just happen. You have to, you have to, you have to cultivate that. I think that's one of the biggest challenges with, with providing any kind of resource or assistance is that there's that stigma or there's that fear of shame and, you know, people, I mean, we're all human, but we all also just want to feel like we're, in line and we're not kind of standing out or um so that can be really hard to get people to to accept the help and even it's like it's sometimes taking that first step but then taking the next 10 steps too um you know so and, you and can let do me it, say you can, yeah no and i'll say this johanna and 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 you know bunny i know will will know what i'm talking about the the um and i'm not just saying this because i'm talking to two powerful confident women but our experience so far at the college in terms of, at least in terms of the food pantry, is that the students who are accepting this help are women. Like, a, a, you know, 90%, I think, of the of the recipients of 
this program have been our female students, especially female students with kids. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. they, they, they will not be shy about, hey, this is something that's going to help my family and yeah. so on. But I, I know, I know that we have male students who are, who are just um, obviously just as deserving and, and, and certainly have a need as well. Um, but pride, there's all these other things that, that can, that can come into play. And so we are working on as a college, how do we, how do we overcome that? I will tell you, and I was just talking to, to some of our student leaders about it. Um, I have two, two ideas. Um, one is, uh, one is crazy. Well, they're both, all my ideas are crazy. Um, (laughs) They're not crazy if they work. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'll either be burned in effigy or they'll sing songs yeah. about me. Um, so one of them is when we were first looking at where we were going to put the food pantry, there were there were a few who said, you know what, we should put it in the far end of the campus um, away from everything so that, you know, students don't need to be embarrassed and they kind of go in and out and no one ever sees it. Um, and I fought against that. I said, no, 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 we, we, it has to be in the center of the, it has to be the most visible place on the campus. One, because students need to know it's there. And two, because we've got, let's just hit it head on. Let's hit this head on and make it, let's make the culture of the institution about how we all serve each other and, and make that who we make that part of our identity as an institution. Um, the other, and this is going to be a little more controversial is that, in my perfect world, I would want every student as part of their educational journey and actually as a graduation requirement that they all have to serve at least one shift in the pantry. So that mm. now it's now it's students who serve. Other, all it takes is yeah. a couple hours. That's it. In four years, they just need to ser- sit a couple hours in the food pantry. And um, and it's not like it's hard work. They check a student ID and hand a bag out. Um but that's because I want to, I want to normalize it. I want yeah, to normalize it. I think that's a great idea. So, and we'll I mean, see. talk about like culture, the, the culture that you're dealing with too in Northern New Mexico might be another barrier for, you know, men coming in. That's, you know, it's just very different um, for, for men in Northern Mexico and the pride and, um, obviously yeah. I can't speak to it exactly, but I do know the population up there and, so that, that's well, another barrier for you too. But but it's in in some ways that's a language that I that I speak, Johanna, because I mm-hmm. come from a, a, an institution in the military that is so hyper masculine sometimes, and definitely, um, and that relies on a lot of those. Um, unfortunately, I think um, some of those stereotypes that that um, you know they can be overcome. They can be overcome. It's just, it's just, you've got to be, that there has to be a willful, conscious, strategic um, intent to, to really address it. Yeah. Well, I think your two strategies are, I think those are really good ideas. I think that will be I'll keep successful. you posted. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Well, and I love talking about strategies. You know, people think that when you talk strategy, it's, you know, you have an outline, here's where we are, here's where we want to go, here are the steps, but you also have to be strategic about setting up stuff. Like, like you said, this is how we all serve each other. Yeah. Um, this is how we ask for help. This is how we teach people to ask for, I mean, Johanna will tell you that when I was first diagnosed with cancer, one of the hardest things for me to do was 
allow other people to help me. I mean, I had to let my college age daughter move in and take care of me. And so being strategic about teaching people how to ask for help is really important. It's huge. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bunny. I think, and you know what? Sometimes you, you don't know what you're capable of until you're in that moment right? You, you, you had to walk that walk. And, and so I, my guess is, well, actually not my guess, just from knowing you, there are a lot of things that you learned by having to go through it and doing it. Right. And that has, I know that has made you a better board chair in terms of the foundation and what the foundation does and how it serves, because you have been the, the, the people we are serving, you have, you have been in their shoes and, and that's really, and you can't, there's, there's no, there's nothing, you can't put a price tag on on the value of of that, right? In terms of how you can be of service. When I think of strategy writ large, uh, and I will tell your listeners this: anyone who uh, who would say that they have a blueprint for strategy, uh, I, I'm gonna I would say an expletive that probably is not appropriate for your podcast, but it, they are <laughs> full of baloney. I'll, I'll I'll put it that way because I don't think there's a blueprint for it, but. I think there are two muscle movements, um, intellectual muscle movements that are a part of any strategy. And one of them is context. So in other words, how do we understand our environment, right? Uh, what are the things that, if you're, if you're leading an institution, what are the things we do well? What are the things we don't do well? What are the, what are the challenges we face? What are our resource constraints? All of these issues, right? That's one. How do we understand that environment? The second is how do you deal with uncertainty? And because in strategy, everything is, uh, you are always battling uncertainty, always. Part of that is because we don't understand the environment perfectly. And the other is that we live and work in a highly complex and dynamic environment. It's always changing. So there's always uncertainty involved. And I think organizations are are strongest when they understand who they are, good and bad, and own it, uh, and are willing to be nimble enough to adapt to uncertainty and and respect the fact that uncertainty is omnipresent. When you when you can do those two things, then I think I think your chances for strategic success are are greater. Well, just the adaptive. Ability, I guess, uh, how you had to adapt for the, the food pantry and make it online. And right. how, how long was that that kind of turnaround process? Did that take? Oh, gosh. Sounds like it would take a long time, but maybe not. <laughs> well, you know, but, but when you, you know, obviously when you're, when you're willing to be that nimble, you can do things really quickly. I'll give you another example. When, when, uh, when we saw the virus move from China to Italy, Right. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of January ish, 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the year before we had raised money for the college for something called the President's Eagle Fund. We had started it. It's it. Have you heard the term tripping upstairs <laughs> or or, yeah. or stumbling <laughs> into success? Uh, I you know, this is one of those, you know, tripping upstairs kind of moments, but uh, where it made it seem like we knew what we were doing. But <laughs> we had raised we had raised this money for the President's Eagle Fund because we had wanted to think more holistically about student services and let's so we're going to do the food pantry and open a clothing closet and uh, mental health care all these other things we were going to do for students. Well, in January when the virus moved to to Europe, 
um, we formed a task force and we said, okay, you know what? This is coming. This is coming. And we better be ready for it. And so what we did almost on a dime, we went out and said, okay, we need to find as many Google Chromebooks as we can. Uh, hopefully I just, uh, you know, shameless uh, advertising for it's that. It's okay. <laughs> uh, Maybe if, I was going to say, if anyone from Google is listening, uh, you can make the checks payable to the Northern Foundation. <laughs> so, um, so because we knew that we had students who the only device that they had uh, was their phone, right? And, and we knew that eventually we were going to have to, pretty soon we were going to have to move everything online. And we had students who we didn't want them taking classes on their phone. Uh, the other was hot, hot spots and jetpacks. In Rio Riva County, north of Santa Fe, where both of our campuses are located, 48% of homes don't have access to the internet. So moving everything online was not a panacea for us, right? We had to, we had to be super creative very quickly and figure out how to do this. So, I mean, Johanna's another long answer to your question, but within a very short amount of time, we basically said, okay, how are we going to deal with this unbelievable crisis in, in knowing that the, the odds are against us because we don't have, you know, we don't have a community that has unlimited resources um, and we're already starting in a deficit. But we had, because we had raised money, we had thought about, hey, this is, we have this limited resources. Let's, let's get these things that we know are going to matter. And then we boosted all of the signals on our campus for Wi-Fi. We then mapped out all of the public available Wi-Fi uh, locations in the, in the valley here and posted it. And so we were able to, um, we were able, we were the one college that grew during the pandemic because we were, we had, we had, even in the midst of all those challenges, we were nimble enough and willing to be creative enough to move quickly to change mm -hmm. the way we did things. And I mean, that's amazing. That's, it is amazing. It's inspiring, but it's also like you accepted that there's some things that we can't control. Like this virus is coming. We can't fight it right that's now. Right. We just have to adapt to it and do the best we can for the students. Right. You, right. That's you right. Can't act like this isn't coming because it's only going to hurt those people. So that's right. That's yeah. really amazing. For some reason, this reminds me, Johanna, of when we were speaking with Daphne and, and she talked about being emotionally agile all the mm -hmm. time, you know, mm -hmm. that that's one of the, that's, that's really one of the, the benchmarks of, of, um, uh, um, of resilience. Absolutely. Is be, and you're, what you're saying is that you were strategically agile, that you, yes you were nimble. Yeah. I mean, you did stumble upstairs, but you at least <laughs> you were always thinking, you know, there may be things we have to change to keep our students engaged and yeah, what a great way to do it. And, you know, you said you started this, this discussion, Bunny, with a talk about how higher education is changing. Uh, I think, I think it's incumbent upon all of us in higher education to think about how, the academy writ large is is changing. And I think for, for college and university presidents, it has to be not just about how do we how do we build the culture now and how do we make sure that that we're we're cultivating an environment that that helps students be successful and all that. How do we solve and I apologize in advance to 
any of your listeners who are professional or amateur marine biologists, but how do we deal with the sharks closest to the boat, right? Um, <laughs> and because uh, those things have to be addressed, right, quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. But but then I think I think any chief executive also should be thinking: What does the landscape look like ten years from now, twenty years from now, fifty years from now? Mm -hmm. And and in higher education, that's definitely the case. And I think. We could go way down the rabbit hole here in this podcast, um, but I think that that the concept that that I think about or that I grew up with in thinking about college in the 20th century is going to be very different in in the next 30 years. And and so, what are the things that that colleges and universities need to do now to be, and what are the pieces that we need to start putting in place now uh, so that those institutions will be successful uh, down the road and and our concepts are changing. So it, it helps me because I wasn't, I was the first person in my family to, to graduate from college. And yeah, that gives you a perspective, right? Because it's not like I, I had family members who had any, any real knowledge of this. I had to kind of learn it as I, I went. And in some ways that has served well, because I'm not uh, I don't, I'm not calcified in my thinking about what college is because it was very new to me as, as I came in. There is a, there are students in this state in New Mexico who are living on campus at one of our universities or colleges and taking all their classes online, not because of COVID, I mean, pre-COVID, right? And so to the 20th century college student, Rick, that just seems crazy, right? Why, why would someone do that? That just seems, why not, you know, live anywhere else and do that? Um, uh, two things that I think are changing. One is the, the way in which um, classes are delivered, obviously, you know, and online. I think COVID will be one of those, one of those inflection points, right, in education where mm -hmm. we, we're now a lot more comfortable doing things remotely. Uh, for good or for bad. Um, so the delivery is changing. The students are going to become far more comfortable at almost looking at higher education like a smorgasbord, right? And and actually hand choosing classes from different institutions at the same time. Um, that is, that's foreign, I think, to, to a lot of mm -hmm. 20th century college graduates. So institutions need to be more adaptive. And we can talk about chess in a minute. The other is that student experience, like the 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 experiential part of college education, I think is gonna is going to become far more important. And and institutions that that dedicate themselves to everything that happens, not just in the classroom, but but maybe even as much what happens outside the classroom in terms of those those uh, connections. I think they're going to be successful in the mid 21st century and they've got to adapt now to start to create those landscapes. Well, and you're doing things that are not just for th that are not just traditional higher education activities. I mean, I love this um that you're the top you have the top performing high school equivalency program in the nation. Yeah. Yeah. For two of the last 5 years. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know it's a great thing. And so for for a lot of and for the listeners, um, some some people might know it as GED, or it, it's basically a you know it's a it's a way to get a, a high school equivalent degree um, with it. You know, if, if for those who don't graduate high school, what I learned from that is that 
there may be people, there may be listeners right now who, who may jump to conclusions and say, oh, well, that's northern New Mexico and, uh, you know, those kids just drop out and because they're screwing around or they're in trouble or, um, but I see it differently. Um, that the students that we have in our program, they're students who dropped out of high school at 16 because they had to get a third job to support their grandparents, right? Or, um, or some other family crisis that they had to deal with. And so it wasn't that they weren't good students. It wasn't that they weren't diligent. It's that life got in the way for them and they had to respond and had to be nimble enough, right? To deal with, with the, with the crises they were facing. Um, so th the other thing, and it's so inspiring is that it, think about, you know, the, the landscape in Northern New Mexico and, you know, it's not like the, the public school districts here have unlimited funding. You know, we are so underfunded in, in a lot right. of ways in our region. Uh, it tells me that there is not a correlation between poverty and aptitude and that, and that students from any background and from any socioeconomic uh, stratum, if given the right emotional support, can crush it. They can crush it. We're, we're living proof of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, right? It's not like we handpick students for the, the GED program here. They are, they are students who are from our region and they are performing. So there's two, there's two um, uh, measurements of a, of a GED program. And you know that that ranking that you just gave, Bunny, it's based on the the scores that those students achieve in something called a high set test, which are a series of five really difficult tests. They actually say that two thirds of high school graduates can't pass those those five tests. That's how challenging mm -hmm. it is. So that's one indication, and the other is um, the percentage of graduates who go on to college or um, a a higher uh, uh, entry job or the military. Those are the two variables that they weigh these programs on. And the, I, I, I remember the, the, one of the years that we were the, the top program, the, the average, the national average for those high set tests was like 67%, something like that. Mm -hmm. Our scores were 92. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, you know, okay. Right. That's, that shows you. And by the way, and and we did that with two thirds of the average funding of a of a of a normal GED program around the country. So with less money, mm -hmm. we we were able to perform just incredibly. So wow. yeah, it's 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 inspiring. Yeah, they're all God, that's amazing, and they're all college students now. Well, that's I thought. Wow, what a great way to build a pipeline. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> two years ago, Bunny. Um, we we have more college students coming into Northern from our own GED program than from any other single source. Like that was the biggest entry point into the college was from the GED that is, program. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, well, and then you did, uh, you also did this, um, you really beefed up the vocational program, right? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, to you know, my husband who who says every kid doesn't have to go to school and get a BS in, you know, either a hard science or a soft science. He's, he's been really excited by what you've done with vocational ed. Well, Toby deserves some of the credit for this, actually. 
I hope oh, I hope he's why? I hope he's listening, and I hope he gives me a a, a, a drink for it. Um, so <laughs> you know he'll do that, right? right. He will. <laughs> um, so th- it's it's very interesting. When I came to Northern in 2016, the community here was almost unanimous in in saying, "Rick, there are two wicked problems that we want you to help us solve." Um, and I really almost to a person, and Toby was one of those voices. Um, but they said two things, Rick, one, you have to bring back the trades, you know, bring back career technical education opportunities. And two, you have to revitalize the El Rito campus, which is our Northern, you know, campus is the original location. So about an hour North of Santa Fe. And so over the last, over the previous decade and a half or so, um, the, the, the college had, had gone through a transition from a two-year to a four-year school. And unfortunately, and by the way, that's not an indictment on anyone who came before, but unfortunately, there were two byproducts of that transition. One was that the trades evaporated, and two was that the El Rito campus, where a lot of that was happening, really started to, to shrivel up. So, um, so we started this, this, uh, down this path, this kind of crazy idea, and um, we, we, the strategy was twofold in terms of El Rito. We said, okay, one, um, let's, let's not accept utilities because everyone said, oh, the cost of utilities were ex- too expensive. And that's why the campus started to, to shut down. We said, let's not accept utilities as utilities. And two, let's take the location because everyone said, oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. And that's why it died. I said, let's, let's take the location. What everyone says is a disadvantage and let's flip it. So let's make sure let's make it not only not a disadvantage, let's make it the selling point for whatever we decide to do. So that led to a partnership with a group called Kit Carson, their electric co-op out of Taos, mm-hmm. um, went to them. They were looking at where they were going to build these big solar arrays. And so I made the, the pitch. I said, hey, we've got a place on our El Rito campus. And so luckily they agreed. And so that was the, the location of a 1.5 megawatt solar array, which is phenomenal now. And so as, as community members started to see those panels go up, then it wasn't just talk anymore. It was like, okay, they're, they're really serious about really revitalizing this place. And that kind of sparked an idea to say, okay, um, how do we bring back the trades and how do we kind of locate it here in El Rito? We drafted a Senate bill in 2019 that allowed us to create something called a co-located branch community college. So we have a four-year school with, a, with an embedded two-year school in, inside of it. We didn't need to build a new campus. We didn't need another president, none of that stuff. So we, we crafted this piece of legislation and uh, it, was, it passed unanimously. Uh, the House and the Senate, Republicans, Democrats, everyone. Wow. Every, that doesn't happen too often in New Mexico. And no. So, um, so, that, that, and, and so we were able to create that. It's the first of its kind in the history of the state because no, no one had ever kind of created that. Then I went to five public school districts. Española, Powaque, Mesa Vista, Chama, and Hemis Mountain, all around northern New Mexico. And I made multiple presentations to their school board saying, I know that you would like to do this for your students, and it's super expensive, but what if the college did it? Let, let the college do this. You just agree to come together and form our community college district. And over the summer in 2019, all of them came together and said, yep, we'll do that. And that led to a, a mill levy initiative, a ballot question in the fall of 2019, where we asked the voters, hey, here's the idea. Would you, would you be willing to support this, a small property tax? And even in a very challenged socioeconomic community, 
over 62% of the voters said, not only do we believe in this idea, but we're going to help you pay for it. And that is, I mean, there is no better, you know, uh, validation for what we're trying to do. And remember, I talked about the location of, of El Rito. If you draw a map around those five public school districts, almost the perfect geographic center of those five districts is the El Rito campus. And so starting in August this past year, um, the college now through this mill levy, we provide free transportation to each of those high schools in those five districts so that juniors and seniors in high school and adult learners who live in those communities get a free ride down to El Rito once a week to do hands-on classes in plumbing and pipe fitting and electrician technology. And so it's the first time we've had hands-on classes there in 12 years. Wow. And so we, we, yeah, we kicked it off. And what a beautiful place to oh. be going to school. Yeah, it's lovely. It's also where the president's house That's is located. Awesome. So, oh. Yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a little biased. I'm a little biased. Yeah, it's wonderful. Love it. That's so awesome. I didn't even know about all that. That's so, so cool. I, I have to tell you that there are several times in the middle of this conversation when it, I have started to tear up Yay. because I'm so proud. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm proud to know you, Rick, but I'm also really proud of how Northern New Mexico has uh, both the geographic area and the college have sort of rewritten how higher education works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I'm so excited. Thank you. Yeah. We're really, we're yeah. really lucky. And, and, and it's been a, it's been a, a community effort and that's when you, when you have a community back in you, there's no, that you can move mountains, mm -hmm. you can move mountains, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think that's the whole leading from the heart part. I mean, I told you when you said that in the beginning, I feel like that ought to be sort of the title of this is that when you lead from the heart, I think success follows. I do too, I do too. Well, I think it speaks a lot to you, Rick, no offense, but to come from, from out of state and to be kind of an outsider and come in and get that community buy-in because you're doing, something amazing for the community and they can see that. But that's, that's really a testament to your work. Thanks, Johanna. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> so in five years, the best compliment I ever, I ever received that it was at a, it was at a public meeting. Um, but, but someone used the word gente, um, you know, pe people of your, in other words, you're of the people. Uh, you know, I, there've been a lot of awards and we've gotten a lot of accolades and, um, uh, but I got to tell you, I think I think in five years, I don't think any compliment has meant as much as that one, because then it's then it's like we don't think of you as an outsider anymore. We don't you're 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 you're, you're, you're of the people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So now I'm tearing it, it really up. Thank you. A lot. If, if people don't <laughs> understand that, that's a huge compliment. Yeah. 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 So um, and now, you know, but we have to keep moving. That's the other thing is is. Uh, you know, the, 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 the challenges continue, right? So, in, and I think institutions always, especially colleges and universities always have to be thinking about the next, you know, the next steps. And, and so we're, we're, we've got a couple of different things in the fire right now. Um, we're working on a, we're working on a project called Earthshot, which is energy, agriculture, resources, technology, and health. And it's our small way of saying we can tackle climate change and we can do it from northern New Mexico and we can do it at this little college. And we we have a project that is really going to focus on 
converting dirt to soil, um, which protects the watershed, which, uh, you know, and water. Wait, 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 wait. You say that again, converting dirt to soil? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in other words, there is a, uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to say the word right. Um, desertification, like there is a, mm -hmm. if we're not careful with how we, how we cultivate, sorry for the pun, um, our land and how we shepherd that and take care of that land, mm -hmm. then the more of it turns to desert, a couple of things happen. One, water is much more likely to evaporate, right? Um, and so we're not, right. we're not capturing that. Mm -hmm. to agriculture, all these other things that, that are important to the economy, regional economy, start to shrivel up. Um, well, we can solve a lot of those things um, if, if, we, if we think differently about land. And by the way, um, you know, at, at, at Northern New Mexico colleges, uh, that there are eight northern pueblos, eight, mm -hmm. uh, eight tribal sovereign entities, in addition to Hickory Apache Nation and Navajo Nation, um, that, that have understood this for over a thousand years. Right. And so, Centuries. yeah. Yes. Um, so, so part of it is how, how do we, how do we rewild the environment? How do we, how do we rewild? How do we convert dirt back to soil? Um, and so we're, we're in a partnership with, um, with Los Alamos National Laboratory. Um, NASA is now interested, which is great. And this is Northern. This is our little college, right? Wow. <laughs> um, so we just had a meeting with the, the state secretary of agriculture. They're interested. Um, we're looking at a, a partnership potentially with USDA and to say, hey, we're going to take our goal is to is to do a, an analysis of 78 million acres in New Mexico, which is really darn near the whole state. Mm -hmm. And to do an analysis at three different levels, those who have the hand in the, in the dirt, right? Um, using um, drones, FAA drones, and we have a drone program at Northern to, with certain sensors on it to marry it. And then NASA retasking satellites to use their imagery and now take all three of these levels and combine them and then use the, our, our, our partners at Los Alamos to develop an app so that we really create something that is bottom up. So it's not, it's not about top down governmental approaches because that we we've been trying that. Right. And that's not no, no offense to our elected leaders, mm -hmm. but it's not like every national leader is, is serious about this. So we've got to start thinking about it differently and, and really a bottom up approach. And so the, the app would basically be at least in New Mexico, would be available so that any landholder, stakeholder, tribal entity, anyone that had access to this app, based on their GPS, it would say, hey, our analysis shows that here are three or four things that very simple things that if you do this to your own soil, it'll increase your agricultural um, output by 33%. It's going to hold on to 33% more water. It's going to X, Y, Z. And so it's now an incentive for everyone to take ownership in that way, and now um, almost organically start to start to deal with the crisis of climate change, and we're doing that all from Northern. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, I wish I had a better word, but wow, that's that's amazing. I, well, I do too. Well, you know, as a farmer's daughter who grew up in, and and whose grandparents and parents lived through the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very near and dear to my heart. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So you're not, so when you talk, so we, we talked about strategy. You have to know your context. You have to know that uncertainty is omnipresent, but don't you also have to be thinking every minute, five to seven to 10 to 20 years down the road. I mean, where you can't stop. Right. That's the, that's the hard thing about. Yeah. And so this is going to, this is probably way too far down the rabbit hole for, for this podcast. But um, I was thinking about this the other day and, you know, as a college president, you know, what does the, what does the higher education landscape look like a hundred years from now? Right. And here's my, here's, this might be the, uh, maybe the only one, um, there are studies of brain architecture, right? And, and that looks, they look at, um, synapses, right? The electrical signals firing in the brain. And we don't have right now, we don't have the technology to be able to map those signals. We can map kind of general areas and it looks like there's some activity in this part of the brain and that part of the brain, but we certainly don't have the tools to analyze it to the specific electrical signal, right? But we're going to get there. And this is going to blow your mind probably, and, and those are your listeners, but I think that education writ large, at the point at which we are able to map it to that extent, then education as we know it is going to change because there now will be, and this is gets, you can, we can almost get dystopian about it, but I think there's going to get to a, we're going to get to a point where we can actually almost like the matrix, right? You, I need to learn how to fly a helicopter. And now, you know, all of a sudden you could do it. Um, I think, I think a hundred years from now, I think two things are going to be true. One is that um, there will be an opportunity to provide education um, in terms of knowledge, right? Or data. I should, I shouldn't say knowledge. I should say data um, that actually could be programmed in us at the, at the point at which you can manipulate those electrical signals you can manipulate that, um, that espionage, that, that, that the, there are some really crazy things that would come from that too. But I think then it goes back to the student who is taking all of her classes online, but living on campus. I think that now the, 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 the real purpose of higher education is going to be twofold because it's not just about taking you know, things and memorizing them and learning it. It's really about experiential learning, right? It's really mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. um, sitting in a classroom in a Socratic method and, and having a dialogue in ways that students come up with their own answers to, to challenging questions. I think that will be the, the, the hook that higher education is going to need to fill. Um, and so, so, and we're starting to see that now in some ways, right? It's all about what students are doing with each other that really, uh, and I, you know, even for both of you, if you think about the, the most important things that you did in your, at college, I'm sure some of it had to do with things that happened in the classroom, but I bet a lot of it had to do with, with other students you were with and things that you Pretty did much, together. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> so, so we're going to have to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. Well, and that takes, I mean, this takes me back to one of the first things you said when you were talking about the food bank, how will we all serve each other? I mean, that's, you know, it's obviously going to be the future of higher education, but I, I, mean, I just think that's the future of life. How do we figure out how to serve each other? And 
when you talk about going down a rabbit hole, we you can just come back. Oh, I'd love to do we'll that. Do I'd love again. to do that. I know because I still wanted to ask you about the Cancer Foundation and everything. So yeah, you you will have to come back. I would it. love to, and it is really I'm I'm a you know I'm I'm so I'm very grateful. I'm grateful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to brag about the college and our students and our community. It's it's a it's it's a real joy, and I, I I owe you both that. So thank you for that. And I would love to come back anytime, anytime. Well, we're so grateful to have you here. So um, lucky Northern New Mexico. <laughs> thank you. And us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, Rick. it's a pleasure. That's all we've got today, friends. I want to thank you for joining the Life Saving Gratitude podcast with your host Bunny Terry. That's me, and my producer and assistant Johanna Medina. We feel like we're in the business of sharing the stories that save us, and we hope you'll share as well by letting your friends and family know about the podcast. Follow and like us wherever you listen, and please take the time to leave a review. Whether it's a stellar comment or a suggestion, we are open to suggestions all the time. Also, follow us on Instagram at LifesavingGratitudePod. You can also follow me personally at Bunny Terry Santa Fe. You can sign up at my website at bunnyterry.com to receive weekly emails about how to become the ultimate gratitude nerd. Thanks so much for checking in.